Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Gobble, 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 one of us, we accept her, gobble, 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 we accept her, yay! Yay! See that, Georgie? You made it. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everyone. My name's Marcus Parks. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Oh, very good. And we're here on part two of The Ramones. Now, the idea for the Ramones belonged almost solely to the man who would become the drummer, Tommy Ramone, although it took years for him to finally get everyone together in the same room to even have as much as a rehearsal. Well, they spent years just talking about it over lunch. <laughs> and, you know, when Tommy approached Johnny about it, he's like, you know, you used to be in a band when you were in high school. Why don't, why don't you uh, start a band now? And Johnny's, he literally said, no, that's sick. <laughs> That's not normal. It's a sick idea. That's a sick idea. I ain't going to do that. But then he also added, but I can do that if I want to. (laughs) The interesting thing is that Tommy didn't actually want to be in the Ramones. Owing to his background in music production, Tommy only wanted to manage the Ramones because he saw the potential and at the very least, Johnny and Dee Dee. Tommy thought these guys were very charismatic. Uh, They had the right look. They were characters. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what Tommy could already figure out in his head how to make it work. And he was just like, don't worry, I'll show you the ropes. I got all this experience. I I, I can show you how to record an album or a demo. I could show you how to be a band. So after Dee Dee and Johnny got their guitars, they got together with a friend named Richie Stern. Ah, Richie Stern, the Pete Best of the story, or the Wally Nightingale. There's a lot of these guys throughout rock history. Yes, but the difference, though, is that Richie Stern bowed out after like a rehearsal or two is because he just couldn't play <laughs> he just ne- he couldn't learn he had no timing no rhythm nothing it's like that time i tried to start a band <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i understand the one with your brother yeah <laughs> and you know the funny thing is this was like in the 90s and we were kids we were in school and i came up with a band name which was the white stripes <laughs> It was, I'm not even kidding. It was either blue stripes or white stripes. Ah, well, it, my brother is not 
Jack from the White Stripe. <laughs> from the Right Stripe. <laughs> but but you know. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's still very, and it's it's very strange because it's a brother and a sister in a band called the White Stripes. When later there would be a band called the White Stripes with a divorced couple pretending to be brother and sister. It's weird. <laughs> but anyway, so Richie Stern didn't quite hack it. Yeah, uh, I think Joey said, uh, "Oh yeah, he uh, had a nervous breakdown and uh, he quickly left." Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the joke for years. It's like, yeah, he ended up in a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> And when it came to choosing who would do what in the band, the original lineup of the Ramones was a little different from the end product. At first, Johnny played lead, Joey was the drummer, Richie was the bassist, and Dee Dee played rhythm guitar and sang. But Dee Dee couldn't play and sing at the same time, and really couldn't even play guitar anyway, even when he wasn't singing. And in addition to that, Dee Dee had no control over his voice, and he would sing so hard with each song that he'd go hoarse and lose his voice after maybe two or three songs. So the band rearranged. That's right. Uh, Tommy decided it'd be best for Joey to sing. Because remember, Joey was already a singer in a band called Sniper for two years. And also because uh, there's that famous story where uh, it took two hours for Joey to get the drum set ready for their first rehearsal. And the guys got just so bored, they just started playing. And so Joey, it just starts like, you know, playing too as best he can as he's like putting everything together. And then they look back and they see Joey just sitting on the point of a drum stool because he didn't have time to put the seat on. It's just like, it's like if you don't know how to how a drum stool is put together, you're just sitting on a pipe that is going up your asshole. <laughs> I know, it's the, I know. It's the only place it can go. <laughs> Joey was very much the Bridget Jones of the band, <laughs> unfortunately, but fortunately. Yeah. But I mean, but eventually they got to where they're like, no, nope, Joey's going to be the lead singer. Yeah, because Dee Dee loved how weird Joey was and how like his look was so cool. Like he's so weird looking to him. You well, know? it wasn't as the, it wasn't that nice. No. Well, <laughs> well, that was the thing. Dee Dee's like, this will look cool. Uh, Tommy's like, yes, I agree. It'd be great visually for Joey to be in the middle between you guys. But Johnny was like. Uh, I don't know. He's not good looking enough. Yeah. You know, it, 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 he, they kept talking. They kept going back and forth. And Johnny's like, I mean, it, he's just too ugly, man. <laughs> <laughs> and Dee Dee's like, but it's cool that he looks all fucked up. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it'll work perfectly. And the whole time, Joey's sitting there like, guys, <laughs> um, I'd also like to add that we're not in a room full of Jim Morrison's. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just, I'll, I'll sing. I'll sing. The only thing the band needed at that point was a name. Now, as we know, Dee Dee's real name was not Dee Dee, just like Joey's real name wasn't Joey. Dee Dee's real name was Douglas. But Dee... <laughs> I mean, Douglas is a is a fine name. Doug is a fine name. I have many close friends named Doug. Uh, but, you know, an alias is more fun. And Dee Dee had a long history of using aliases. Back in the 60s, Dee Dee called himself Dee Dee Ramon. The inspiration for this was A Hard Day's Night, starring the Beatles, because the name Paul McCartney used both in the movie and in real life to check in a hotels at the height of the Beatles' fame was Paul Ramone. And since everyone in the band were big Beatles fans, the premier punk band named themselves the Ramones, not only as a tribute, but because it just sounded really fucking cool. It sounded tough. Made them sound like a gang. <laughs> New York! It's a very West Side Story. <laughs> Now, it may not be surprising to discover that the first Ramon show did not go smoothly. 
With Richie out of the band, the Ramones played as a three-piece, with Dee Dee on bass, Johnny on guitar, and Joey both singing and playing drums. Little Levon Helm thing going on. <laughs> yes, they were. Uh, they played their first show March 30th, 1974, uh, just after a few months of rehearsal, really. And they played with The Fast, remember? Oh, love Rem- The Fast. Yes. Boys will be boys. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they played with The Fast uh, for like an audience. It was pretty good of like 30 people, which is, you know, all their friends and girlfriends, boyfriends and roommates. It's like we were saying at the last, uh, in the, at the end of the last episode, you know, scenes always start with the people you know. Exactly. And that's what they started. They were seriously starting a scene. And they played their show and Johnny said, nobody came back for the second one, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you ever embarrass yourself on stage or like in a public setting and and your friends kind of look at you when you get off and and they have nothing. They they have no words, really. (laughs) Yeah, I've played in bands for like 20 years. Of course I know that fucking moment. I do stand up. <laughs> it was like a weekly thing. Yeah, of course. No, no, it, it really is. Especially when you're trying something brand fucking new. I mean, it was like this first show was like a comedy of errors. It was very sloppy. It was very amateurish. But well, but, Joey but Ramone was... fell down the fucking stairs in the middle of the set. <laughs> <laughs> like he lost balance on his. He was playing drums. He lost balance and he fell backwards down the stairs. <laughs> Aw, it's part of the show. (laughs) What was important when it came to this first show was not necessarily how they sounded, but where the gig was held and who was running the venue. This space, called Performance, would be where the Ramones first had dealings with future tour manager Monty Melnick. Monty. Monty. Monty Melnick sounds like an old man's name. <laughs> yeah, when you see him in uh when you see him in uh fucking interviews now, like he looks like a guy who hangs out on Queens Boulevard. Like he's bald, he's got a mustache, he's got a he's very pudgy. He looks like uh like Mario would look like in real life. Yeah, he yeah. does actually. <laughs> but Monty, like he but he was still like a neighborhood guy. I mean, he went to Forest Hills High School, he graduated, he went to school with Tommy and Johnny. I mean he was a, a local guy that everyone knew and also played in a band with Tommy before. Yeah, he was was he in the Tangerine Puppets or was he in was it called Mush? He was in Triad Tri- or or Butch. <laughs> Butch, that's what it that's is. That's the it was, one it he was, was Butch, in. yeah. Uh, and you know, so he was a buddy, but he also had band experience. Mm-hmm. Like he was in a, a band called 30 Days Out. They got to record a couple albums. Yeah, 30 Days Out was a legit band. Yeah, I mean, they opened for the Beach Boys. Yeah, that's not bad at all, or which Rush. the Beach Boys of course is uh, another one of the Ramones favorites. Yeah, so after Monty left that band, uh, he came back to Forest Hills, and it was there where he opened the Performance Space Studios you're talking about. Mm-hmm. He got the space just like by happenstance. Like his cousin Ivan called him up. He's like, hey, I'm working, because uh, he was a locksmith. Yeah. I'm working at uh, this one loft, and there's this lesbian couple asking me who can turn it into a really cool hip space. <laughs> and Monty's like, I'm your man. Monty calls Tommy. Tommy's like, I'm also your man. <laughs> Tommy, Monty, and Ivan designed the whole thing they built the whole place just to have like a studio to have a rehearsal space you know throw some shows there yeah and it just a bunch of guys in their 20s just doing this in manhattan it was amazing and bands like blondie uh and the about to be broken up new york dolls rehearsed there (laughs) (laughs) that that's actually where david johansson saw the ramones uh rehearsing and he was just yelling like give it up Just, just just, pack it up, guys. <laughs> and that's where the Ramones did their first show. 
And performance was not long-lived because it had the same problem a lot of DIY music venues have even worse now in New York City than they did back then. Neighbor complaints. Upstairs from performance was a little old lady who didn't take too kindly at all to all the racket happening down below. And eventually she, along with a lot of the other neighbors, forced performance to close by 1975. But then the question remained of where the burgeoning New York rock scene was going to find a home. Yes, there were extremely exciting bands and artists in New York City already playing, but they didn't really have a gathering place. No, because remember, in 1973, the Mercer Arts Center collapsed. Yeah. So that really screwed things up for everybody. Yeah, I mean, there was Max's Kansas City, of course, uh, but I think this might have was this this might have been during the time when Max's was closed because Max's uh, there was it was it was open and then it closed for a long time and then it opened back up again. Yeah, but they already started like their own little clique. Yeah, it's hard for new bands to get in. Yeah, the, a, a lot of times you have to be signed. Yeah, Max's was definitely a clique. Now the answer of where all these other bands were going to go would be one of the worst areas of New York City. The Bowery. Located just off Houston Street in the Lower East Side, the Bowery was a haven for heroin junkies and petty criminals in 1970s New York. See, the city, during this time period, was a victim of what was called white flight. Across the boroughs, much of the white population left the city for the suburbs and essentially left New York to rot. And that mass exodus, combined with bad leadership, caused the city to damn near go bankrupt. What that meant was that the city ran out of money to pay for even the most basic of municipal services, and no one, not even the federal government, were willing to help out, resulting in the infamous daily news headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead. As a result, New York became the most dangerous city in the entire United States. Thank you. <laughs> it was... Take that, Detroit! <laughs> Baltimore. <laughs> it was a terrifying dump of burned out buildings, drug use, prostitution, and violence. And places like the Bowery were basically abandoned as unsalvageable hellholes. But don't worry, Snake Plissken will come out. <laughs> I mean, Escape from New York really wasn't that far off, because what year did Escape from New York come out? 79? Something like that. 79? 78? 79, 78, somewhere around there. And remember, Escape from New York was set in 1997. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that that was how bad New York City was, is that Escape from New York, to them, to John Carpenter, was the logical next step of where <laughs> New York City was headed. Yes, a limo with a chandelier in it. <laughs> That's the next step. Number one, Duke of New York, A eh, number one. <laughs> Never explained how, to British, how a British man became president. That, don't need to. <laughs> But it was right in the middle of this hellhole that a former booker for the famous jazz club, the Village Vanguard, opened a bar called CBGB. Hilly Crystal. Hilly Crystal. What a name. <laughs> I, that just sounds like drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, CBGB was originally called Hilly's on the Bowery. That was below a flop house called the Palace. Mm. And th where that bar, where CBGB's ended up being, was the Palace Bar. Ah, that's cool. Which, I don't know why a flop house has a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was reopened under its new name, CBGB OM. F-U-G, meaning country, bluegrass, and blues, and other uplifting music for gourmandizers. Gourmandizers, it's like a, I guess a, an archaic word uh, for a glutton. Yes, 
a voracious eater of music. Yes. In music this time. Of course. Right? And so this was all in December 1973. And also happened to be near the headquarters of Hell's Angels. Yes. So <laughs> they had a bar too. <laughs> so the place CBGB's was like a derelict bar, especially in that shitty neighborhood. Like the decor matched the outside. Yeah. And when they asked people who went there or played there at that time, the first thing everyone says is that the whole place smelled like dog shit. <laughs> well, there was very good reason for that. Yeah. Hilly had a dog. The bartender had a dog. And they would just let him roam around and kind of shit anywhere. Yeah. People would stay up and shit <laughs> like just hanging out at a bar and and they also serve food there hilly's chili <laughs> they had a pool table they had a, a kind of a kitchen but uh but that was all taken out later like when the venue took off yeah and cbgb's a Pretty much remained the same until it closed. Yeah. Like, I mean, you got to go to CBGB's, right? Yeah, I got to go a year before they closed, like yeah. in 2006 or 2005, I think, when I first moved to New York. It was like one of the first places I went. Yeah, it I went cool. like 2003, 2004, and man, they didn't improve those bathrooms at all. Why Why need to? It's part of the charm. <laughs> <laughs> now, even though the Ramones were the band that helped make CBGB famous, they were not the band that transformed it from a bar to a music venue. According to legend, that band was television. I know I may have mentioned it before, but uh, first take. That is the first take in the studio, Marquee Moon. The, one of the most famous you know, rock songs of the 70s. One of my favorites, one of the best. It was the first take. The producer thought that it was the rehearsal. And then they finished it and they were like, no, that's the take. That's it. Print it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, what was the second take like? <laughs> they didn't do a second take. <laughs> so the story goes that Hilly you know, the owner of CBGB's, mm -hmm. was outside the bar one day putting up a new awning with a new name on it when he saw three guys in torn jeans and T-shirts just watching him. A few days later, those guys who were in a band called Television 
came by and talked to Hilly about letting their band play. Hilly's like, all right, cool. Uh, what kind of music do you play? And Tom Verlaine or Richard Lloyd said, uh, I, what what does your uh, bar stand for? <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, it's country, bluegrass, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we play that. <laughs> sure. What a coincidence, sir. That sounds wonderful. Like, just like us. And so Hilly goes, okay, on one condition. You have to build the stage, and I will give you three Sundays. The band agreed, and they played their first show there on March 31st, 1974, which led to CBGBs becoming a big part of the music scene. However, (laughs) the real story... Yes, that is legend. Because the truth of the matter is, Hilly had already been booking rock acts since 1973, since the year before. (laughs) He was convinced by like his two like local friends, uh, Rusty McKenna and Bill Page, to like put some more experimental stuff on there. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it's a much more the real story is a much more New York story, which is a bunch of guys getting drunk at a bar and talking shit, and then it eventually become and then the idea becomes reality. Right, and like people like the Magic Tramp said they played there before. Wayne County said that she'd been playing there for months. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, in all fairness, uh, we can at least say that television was very much responsible for starting a, a major music scene. So they were the ones to start it, let's say. Yeah, they started the scene, the scene that would eventually come to be known as punk. When, you know, in reality, that's the the funny thing about the scene is, you know, we'll get into this more later. But, you know, the scene that is called the capital P punk scene, there was really only one punk band in that, <laughs> <laughs> in that scene. And that was the Ramones. Television's not a punk band. Talking Heads aren't a punk band. You know, it, Patti Smith is but not... What, but what is punk? <laughs> oh, God, we can't get into that. Oh, God. We, we oh, God. It's what we told ourselves we wouldn't do. We're not going to talk about what punk means to us right now. <laughs> now the thing you got to know about television, as opposed to the Ramones, is that television were very clearly capital A artists. Tom Verlaine's lyrics and Marky Mune are beautifully evocative influenced by french poetry all kinds of flowery shit and the instrumentation in that album is a complicated garden of counter melodies closer to jazz than rock and roll marky moon's one of my favorite albums and tom verlaine is my favorite lyricist his lyrics in this album are breathtaking i'm not i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i know it's breathtaking might be a little it might be a little flowery but hey it's fucking television it's flowery (laughs) The Ramones, on the other hand, usually aren't attached to those flowery descriptors like pastoral and expressionistic, and they were much more likely to listen to the Bay City Rollers than Thelonious Monk. But the Ramones were artists nonetheless, just of a different kind. While television is closer to Walt Whitman, the Ramones are something more akin to Bukowski. The music was raw, sometimes ugly, but always honest and each Ramon brought something to the table artistically, even Johnny. Johnny's contribution could be compared to that of a carpenter who constructs art installations at the direction of the artist, whereas Joey and Dee Dee were the creatives, while Tommy was the man with the plan who brought it all together. <laughs> the man with the plan. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the artistic community of musicians went in the Bowery in the late 70s, somewhere between the elegant complication of television and the stark simplicity of the Ramones was Blondie. I'm in the fumble just to one across the hall.
A girl band I used to be in uh, used to cover that song. It was you, a lot of fun. Wow, you were a girl? <laughs> Ooh. I was the boy, and I was the drummer, <laughs> and I was in the back, and I had very long hair, so if you squinted, it didn't make a difference. <laughs> now, although Blondie and the Ramones got along together for the most part, there was always a sort of personal animosity between the bass players, although Dee Dee and Gary Valentine are both interesting in their own ways. Gary Valentine's real name is Gary Lockman, and after leaving Blondie, he became one of the best occult writers in existence, having authored fantastic books about the nature of consciousness, Aleister Crowley's influence on rock music, and how accidental chaos magic might be responsible for the current state of America. It's called Dark Star Rising. It's amazing. Wow, that's a lot for <laughs> someone to know about. Gary Lockman knows so much. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that guy's brain. But back in the 70s, Gary Lockman was more concerned with how much he could piss off Dee Dee Ramone. <laughs> well, well let's, let's put the blame on Dee Dee on that one. Because there's this one story where one time uh, Gary Valentine and Clem Burke, uh, the, the drummer in Blondie, right. uh, they were just playing pool at CBGB's when Dee Dee, who was pretty hammered, yeah. uh, just hanging around, decided to knock the balls on the pool table around. <laughs> he was real proud of himself. He's like a fucking drunk puppy sometimes. He just wants to stir some shit. <laughs> so Dee Dee said, I bet you think I'm acting like an asshole. <laughs> And Gary says, no, I don't think you're acting at all. Ooh. What'd you just say? What'd you just say to me? It turned into a big argument, and they were, like, quickly pulled apart before it got physical. But this is very The Warriors, you know? But, you know, they were cool, because remember, Christine, who was also in Blondie, let Dee Dee crash at his place a lot when he was living with Tommy. Tommy was roommates with Chris Stein. They were all friends at the end of the day. Yeah, all these bands are interconnected. And, of course, you had Alan Vega and Martin Rev kind of on the edge of it all. Yeah, yeah. So they still knew everyone, but, no, you know. They, they waved. <laughs> but slight animosity betwixt members aside, it was Blondie who gave the Ramones their first gig at CBGB's. Over the years, this gig has become the stuff of legend. But from what it sounds like, it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is August 16th, 1974. They were a foursome now because Tommy joined as a drummer, even though he never played drums before, just because they couldn't find the right drummer. Well, I mean, that was, the story goes that uh, they kept auditioning drummers and nobody could really hit it. Nobody could really do what Tommy had in his head. Like, because Tommy had a very specific vision for like what this band should sound like and what the drummer should sound like. And so finally it was like, fuck it, I'll do it. Because yeah. he got tired of showing, he was like, no, you play it like this. You play it one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And so he just eventually <laughs> was like, no, I'll just be the fucking drummer. I'll, I'll just be the fucking drummer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when they did their show, Hilly called them the most untogether band he had ever heard. <laughs> they kept starting and stopping and screaming at each other. You know, Dee Dee would yell to one, two, three, four, and they would all start playing a different song. <laughs> Well, we've actually got a clip from a Ramon show that was like, I don't know, I guess like a month later, maybe a couple months later. Uh, it's like September 15th, 1974. Uh, and this is the Ramones having an argument on stage in the middle of a show <laughs> about what song to play next. <laughs> I want to go down to the basement. Do I don't want to get in the basement too. Yeah, I know. That's, that's four against one. I really did. Yeah. 
God, <laughs> this should have been at the band meeting. It should have been resolved. It's well, great performance art. Well, it's what happened there. If it was a little hard to listen to, is Joey goes, "I don't want to go down to the basement." <laughs> and Tommy goes, "No, nah, man, I want to do loudmouth." Yeah, what's wrong with loudmouth? <laughs> and Diddy goes, "No, nah, I want to do. I want to go down to the basement too." And Johnny goes, "Fuck it, fuck it." Loudmouth, and they one, two, three, four, and then they start playing. I don't want to go down to the basement. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Alan Vega from Suicide came up to Johnny after like a show, and he said what they were doing was great. He said, "This is what I've been waiting for." <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't believe that they fooled him. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time that the Ramones started playing CBGBs, all of them had left Queens and were now living in Manhattan. And at least two of the Ramones lived in the loft of a painter from Mexico named Arturo Vega. Arturo Vega. <laughs> I'm such an asshole. <laughs> it's pronounced Borrito. <laughs> All right, Arturo. He was an artist originally from Chihuahua, Mexico, and then lived in El DF, <laughs> La Ciudad de Mexico, for a time until he moved to downtown Manhattan sometime in like 1971 and worked as a busboy. He was painting all the time in his loft that he got on East 2nd Street or just around the corner from CBGB's. He would paint supermarket ads like, like you know, apples, 99 cents. Yeah. But it wasn't like a job. It was just his art. Yes, of course. That was his thing. Oh, so it was like an Andy Warhol type of uh, Campbell soup can type of shit. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was just so talented. He he really was. Uh, he enjoyed being provocative, too. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, like he would make these like day glow paintings of swastikas. <laughs> he was obsessed with swastikas. Well, because he thought they like, it was a powerful image to him. You know, he yeah. thought like the only way to conquer evil is to make love to it. <laughs> that to is face a- the devil. <laughs> the only way to make evil is to make love to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We're watching Three Amigos again. <laughs> Well, Arturo Vega was, I mean, he was just a fantastic artist and like one of the coolest guys in the scene. Like when he shows up on documentaries, like he's just, I was like, oh, that's the coolest guy in the room always and forever. And Arturo Vega would be forever linked with the Ramones for reasons that we'll get into on episode three. Yes. Now, even though Joey ended up living with Arturo the longest, Arturo actually knew Didi before the Ramones were even a band, because Didi used to date a woman named Sweet Pam, who lived in Arturo's building. Sweet Pam was a member of the Cockettes, who, if you'll remember, claimed to be both the people who introduced Iggy Pop to heroin and the inspiration for David Bowie's transformation from a folkster singing about gnomes into a glam superstar. That is a claim. <laughs> Those are two claims. They're that, definitely claims. Yes. 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 Exactly. Uh, but yes, yeah, she did live in the building with the cockettes. Uh, the loft. The the whole building was set of three lofts. Right. The top floor belonged to like some drug addict artist named Jimmy, and below that was the cockettes. And then the floor below that was Arturo's loft. Now that this is a place. This was a haven for everyone to hang out in before or after going to play or watch a show at CBGB's. It. It was the place. Yeah. And this is around the time where Dee Dee kept telling Arturo, like, hey, man, I'm starting a band. Yeah, it was my idea, uh, <laughs> starting this band, and I called it the Ramones, and uh, you should go see them. So Arturo did, 
and he thought, well, you guys look cool. <laughs> I think I think Arturo said like when Dee told him about, about the band, he said, I cannot imagine what kind of band this man would be in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he said it took him like five or six times of him watching them perform for him to finally realize like, all right, I think I get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also probably took them playing five or six times to get good enough where he could get it. Like I think it really it takes a mind of someone like Alan Vega to like see the Ramones in the very early days and be like, bam, I know what the fuck they're going for. That's right. And so they weren't just friends of Arturo, but as you said before, they're going to work with Arturo for a long time. A very long time. Now, as you said, you know, Arturo went and saw the band and said, like, these guys look at the very least look really fucking cool. But the Ramones did not come out of the box with the iconic look they'd sport for the entirety of their career together. When the band started, their styles were anything but uniform. Dee Dee was going for a prep school rich kid look. Johnny was wearing, like, standard 70s rock and roll clothes with, like, silver lame pants. Joey, of course, looked like Joey. And Tommy looked like Tommy. But then came the leather jackets. Yeah, the leather jackets. That, that means rebellion. <laughs> it's badass. It's James Dean, even though he wore red windbreaker. But... <laughs> It, it's the wild thing. It's, that, yeah. it's, Marlon, it's Marlon Brando. The wild ones. It's the wild one. Yeah. <laughs> it's Marlon Brando. Yeah, of course. No, that, that, yeah, that's more the leather jacket, without a doubt. But, and Tommy is credited for encouraging them to like streamline their image and make them look like, you know, like regular guys, like relatable, not, un, like, not like untouchable gods. Because Tommy was thinking, like, that's not really going to work outside of New York and L.A. and San Francisco. Like, we need to make our image like anybody can do this. Yeah. And so their uniform became ripped blue jeans, leather jacket, T-shirts, uh, sometimes with a cartoon character on it, uh, bowl cuts. <laughs> yes, the haircuts had to be important, and sneakers. And it just took just a few months to get it down. Yeah, and the funny thing about the bowl cut, Dee Dee hated the bowl cut because Dee Dee worked at, like as a professional hairdresser very briefly, but he was said to be like actually really good at it. But he hated having to have a bowl cut. <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, and Johnny refused to change anything. He's just like, "This is timeless, guys. So we're gonna keep going." They're like, "Are you sure it's like 1991 now?" <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Yeah, in the 1974 clip, like it's it's on YouTube. It's fucking it's really interesting to watch. But uh, Johnny isn't wearing a shirt, and what the jacket that he's wearing, the collars are fur and leopard print. So Johnny had his own idea what was going on in the early days. But <laughs> then once the uniform came in, didn't let him change it at all, and it was the right decision. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And just like the style, the Ramones' live performances were highly calculated. Those early shows were all videotaped. It, well, videotaped for the most part. 
and the band would watch those performances over and over again, looking at what worked and what didn't, like a fucking football team. Yes. <laughs> well, they started doing that when a theater group that opened for them at CV's uh, taped their set. Uh, so they just all they did was watch it over and over again and realize that they needed to make some changes. So Johnny goes over to Joey. He's like, Joey, you see here what you're doing here with these high kicks and uh, <laughs> getting down on your knees thing? Yeah, yeah, I'm performing. You're not doing that anymore. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, what do I do then? Just stand there. <laughs> Didi, yeah, you're playing the bass with your fingers. <laughs> you're going to, that's not right. You're going to play with a pick for now on. Oh, like that. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> guess I need to learn. <laughs> and they wanted lights. Right. White lights and no psychedelic shit, you know, yeah. and and lights on all the members of the band, not just the singer. Arturo worked on that, by yeah. the way. They bought their own PA, too. They bought it early in their band life. Yeah. Time. <laughs> just to make sure that everything went according to plan and they sounded right, even though they were doing small club shows at that time for like five people. Yeah. But they, they it, had it all set up. It was a vision. I mean, it was an absolute vision. And they even spent like six months choreographing their shows. They worked out designated times to like switch their guitars and went to take a drink of water. Even walking on stage. No tuning, no banter. Just walk up and start the wall of noise as soon as you hear, We're the Ramones and you're a loudmouth baby. You better shut it up. One, two, three, four! <laughs> and if you want to see the difference, because there is a difference, you watch the September 15th show and then you check out... The, Art, the Ramones live Arturo set on YouTube, and it's like night and day. This is from a show at the Roxy in 1976. Uh, just listen to the end of California Sun into Judy is a Punk. And it was like that every fucking song. Wow. Like, or except for maybe Joey, every once in a while, go like, that's a chance of massacre. And then they do, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and that's always Dee Dee. That's Dee Dee's job. Yeah. <laughs> Dee Dee's number one job is, one, two, three, four. It's great. And <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the Ramones' romantic life, the Ramones had vastly different experiences, and this is really only important because the romantic life of the Ramones had a direct bearing on the songs they wrote. We're not just gossiping here. Not a little. <laughs> a little, yeah. Joey was by far the most romantic of the Ramones, but at the same time, he was never married and had a long string of heartaches and failed relationships despite being the frontman of one of the greatest rock and roll bands in history. This yearning, Bordering on Desperation is captured perfectly in one of the few slow numbers on the Ramones' self-titled first album. That song, which we heard a little in the first episode, was I Wanna Be a Boyfriend. Boyfriend, 
Joey sings it, you know, yeah. even if Tommy wrote it, you know, but still like, I mean, I guess maybe Joey's songs were a little more pessimistic you know, when it comes to those early love songs, like I don't care, you know, that sort of shit. Like there's yeah. heartbreak in all those fucking songs. And, and who took his baby away? The KKK. Sat. <laughs> now Johnny, true to form, got married in 1972, but left his first wife in 1976 to work in the city as a musician. And, of course, we can't judge him too hard because, remember, Alan Vega did the same fucking thing. Oh, right. Because <laughs> I, I did realize that in that moment. It's like, yeah, Johnny, what an asshole. It's like, no, Alan Vega did the same thing, and we applauded him for it. <laughs> <laughs> We're assholes, too. <laughs> but the Ramon, who had some of the most infamous relationships in those early days, and really all throughout their fucking career, was Dee Dee, specifically when it comes to his girlfriend, Connie. Oh, Connie Grip. Connie Grip. Oh, God, what a fucking name. Uh, yeah, she was just this tall blonde woman, super groupy kind of woman, uh, originally from Fort Worth, te- Texas. No shit, I didn't know Connie was from Fort Worth. Well then. Yeah, she was. <laughs> she, made it her, uh, made, she made it all the way to New York uh, as a go-go dancer, you know, at, at a place called Metropole that the Ramones would hang out all the time. And she sometimes... Uh, did a little bit of sex work on the side yeah. for money and drugs. Well, at least her and Dee Dee had something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and so Dee Dee met Connie after a gig at CB's at four in the morning. He noticed like this total babe sitting on the hood of a car right outside the venue, filing her nails, looking like what Dee Dee described a vampire countess on a mission to capture his soul. <laughs> <laughs> From what people say, Connie is who Nancy Spungen wishes she was. Yes. And Dee Dee is who Sid Vicious wished he was. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, real fucking strange. But uh, what, as you said, like a lot of people have said about Connie, like the first word that comes to their mind is bitch, <laughs> which is awful. But it, I guess it was true because Connie was crazy and always starting fights with everybody. She had previously dated Arthur Kane from the New York Dolls. And when the band told her she couldn't go to California with them on tour, she tried to slice Arthur's thumb off while he was sleeping. Yeah. So he couldn't go either. Yeah. Nancy Spungen was an annoying person. Connie Grip was a legitimately dangerous person. She was very destructive. Yeah. You know, she fought with other girls in the scene, mostly over guys. She ripped the dress off of one girl at CB's. She hit a girl Dee Dee was hanging out with, with her purse, her purse full of 
bricks. <laughs> Yeah. Or there was a time that Connie was chasing after Dee Dee who had gotten in a car with a girl that he knew trying to get away from her and she ran after him as they were peeling out of CBGB's. <laughs> Connie then jumps on the hood of the car and smashed a bottle on the windshield. They had to keep driving until she fell off. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They went to Max's and had a laugh. <laughs> I mean, this is how insane. That, I mean, all these situations that happen around Connie are always destructive and just really dramatic. Yeah, she stabbed Dee Dee in the ass. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, apparently Dee Dee and Nancy Spungen did get it on. Connie caught him and tried to slice him up, yeah. of course, with like a <laughs> knife or something. Uh, but also there is another version of the story I think Dee Dee says in his book, which his book, uh, Lobotomy, it, it, you could take it. You know, either or, yeah, truth or not. I mean, his book, you know, Dee Dee Ramon, as told to. Exactly. Yeah, as to, yeah, you know, as told by Dee Dee Ramon to someone else, yeah. Uh, he said he had a threesome with Nancy and Connie, he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, also, Connie did take care of Dee Dee a lot. Yeah. Uh, she, well, she took care of his habit, his heroin habit, because she's the one who always got him drugs, got him money from, you know, from working and dancing. And uh, Dee Dee just enjoyed being a, a well-kept man. Dee Dee liked being taken care of. That, yes. that That was Dee Dee's thing, is that as long as the woman he was with was taking care of him, he would put up with anything, yeah. even if it was a horribly abusive uh, relationship. But it also went both ways. Like, I mean, wasn't Dee Dee also abusive towards Connie? Yes. Yeah. I mean, oh, it, yeah. He's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, they yeah, were not I mean, good together. They, uh, yeah, they get on, they'd get into full-on fistfights with each other. Like they were horrible, horrible together. And and that went on for a while. Eventually, he broke it off with her once you know the Ramones were already taking off, and he had to work a lot more. And he would see Connie once in a while. She would try to go to a show, but she was banned from all Ramones shows. Eventually, she did die of an overdose in uh, 1983 at only 35 years old. I'm amazed she made it to 1983. <sighs> Connie. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the thing is that Connie was so hated by everyone that when Connie and Dee Dee, like, finally broke up for the last time, Dee Dee's last words to Connie were immortalized in the lead track from the second Ramones album, a song called Glad to See You Go. Gonna take one chance on her One fun in the cylinder And in a moment of passion Get the glory, light of Nancy Gonna smile, I'm gonna laugh You're gonna get a bloodbath And in a moment of passion Get the glory, light of Nancy Gotta go, 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 goodbye Let's see you go, 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 goodbye Let's see you go, 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 goodbye now I know the score I don't need you anymore Don't want you cause you're uh, oh. I need somebody good 
Yeah, in an alternate universe, you would have heard, here's the new track from the Ramones off of their new album, Leave Home. Here's Glad to See You. Go, 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 go. Ooh, dedicated to Joffrey. <laughs> Who's Joffrey? <laughs> now, combined with all these personal problems was the fact that very few people took the Ramones seriously in 1975. That's because despite all the planning, gigs would usually end in confusion and anger after one or all of them started fucking up, and the whole thing fell apart. But Tommy still believed in the band, and he worked tirelessly to get the Ramones both press and attention from the record industry. As a result, in the beginning of 1975, Tommy finally got the attention of Danny Fields, who was talked about extensively in our Stooges series. That's right, Danny. He was important to them because he was writing in magazines like 16 and Soho Weekly News and pretty much featuring a lot of the new bands coming out. Yeah, 16, the the teen girl magazine. Exactly, yes. (laughs) So Tommy sent Danny and another rock columnist, uh, Lisa Robinson, uh, he sent them flyers and letters about the Ramones for months. Tommy would send them like with the loudmouth productions like a header to make it look really professional. <laughs> that was the name of their production company. Of course. Pretty smart. And Danny just ignored them because he was just like, well, well what is the Ramones? Anyways, it's a, a no-nothing cha-cha band. <laughs> it sounds Puerto Rican. I don't know. Everybody thought that back yeah. then. Everyone thought that it was like, you know, Ramones. Like everyone. Si. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone thought that they, yeah, they were some sort of like salsa band because actually at that time in New York City, there was a huge salsa scene going on. Like it was revolutionary. It was gigantic. Like punk was not the only music scene happening in New York at, in 1976, 1977. There's a great uh, book, um, Songs, uh, Buildings on Fire with Love, something like that. Uh, but it talks about all the different music scenes going on in New York at that time. So you don't have to tell me about salsa. <laughs> <laughs> that that shit was created up in Harlem. Uh, of course, yeah. That that was where all that shit was going on at that time. At the same time, the Ramones were getting big, and at the same time, punk was happening. But like Danny Fields, like he had. This is post Stooges. This is post MC Five. You know, he's just in New York, writing for Sixteen. Right, and legend has it that Lisa and Danny flipped a coin to decide who was going to see this. And Lisa lost. (laughs) So she went, and then the next day, she calls up Danny, and she's like, this band is exciting. They're fun, they're funny, and only 15 minutes long. That's their set. Their whole set is that. Yeah, 15 minutes in and out. And the Ramones prided themselves on that. <laughs> very efficient. Yeah, efficient. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, that was Johnny's influence. It was like, well, yeah, we get in, we get out. Why the fuck you want to see a band play for 45 minutes? No one wants to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking just come in and just play for uh, 15 minutes. Over. Done with. Boom. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> Danny was still skeptical, even after hearing Lisa Robinson rave about the Ramones. But he said that when he went to see the Ramones at CBGB the next night, there was one song that sold the band. I don't want to go down to the basement.
Danny loved it. Yeah. He loved it. He's like some guy singing about not wanting to go into basement. That's genius. It's <laughs> perfect. So simple, but so genius. And my favorite quote that I heard Danny say about the Ramones, it, it's perfect. He said, it's like trying to remember what they sound like when they're not there. And every time you hear them, it sounds all over again, like a revelation. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that really is like when you got like, especially now, like, you know, I've never I've never stopped listening to the Ramones like throughout my life. But when we started the series, it'd been a while. Yeah. And then when I like really sat down and just like really listened to the first album, it really like it's just it is a revelation. Like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> like this is this is so good. Yeah. It's as good <laughs> as you remember. It yeah. It every always time. Is. Yeah, Ramones, they just, at least for us, like the Ramones have never gotten old. Yeah. And so Danny goes over to them and he says, I love you. All right, cool. Uh, can you uh, write about us? No. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I write for 16. It's a heartthrob rock star magazine. You're all ugly. I want to manage you. And the guys say, all right. Uh, but we need money for new equipment. We need $3,000. <laughs> Invest $3,000 and you got a deal. So Danny goes, great. I got to go ask my mom first. <laughs> and he did. He got the money and became their manager. Yeah. Uh, that's what he says. Like, yeah, you can manage us. Buy us a fucking drum set. Like <laughs> it was a, it was much more curt than like it's like yeah man we just need a little bit of seed money and then we can start off. No, it was Johnny being a dickhead and go like yeah whatever buy us a drum set and then we'll talk. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe it was more like that. Now as we've said time and again, Danny Fields knew talent when he saw it from Jim Morrison to the MC5 to the Stooges. And this spark of originality was wildly apparent in the Ramones. So, as we said, Danny started managing them. Unfortunately, though, Danny didn't always make the best decisions. And on July 11th, 1975, he booked the Ramones on an ill-advised gig opening for the whitest of white bluesmen, Johnny Winter. Great band for the Ramones to open up for. Yeah, yeah fantastic choice. <laughs> really, gr really great choice to have them open for Johnny Winter, especially when nobody knew who the fuck the Ramones were. <laughs> and yeah, because this was their first out-of-town show. It was a big show, like 2,000 people were there. Yeah. And so this was in, uh, what, you said Connecticut before? So they finally get to go to Connecticut. And they weren't even on the bill since it was last minute. And so when the lights went down and the guys took to the stage, the audience started cheering loudly. They're oh. like, yeah. And the guy's like, cool, this is going to be a great show. And then when the lights went on and the audience realized it wasn't Johnny Winter, 
Things went quiet. After the first song, though, people started throwing shit at them. Like firecrackers, bottles, like anything they had on them. Uh, Coins. Coins is a big thing. (laughs) Yeah. And, And then the sad part is that they didn't get paid because it was an audition. And they, and they also got a big no from the record label who put them on. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's really, I, I I know what that's like. Like one time I auditioned for like a major New York comedy club mm-hmm. and uh, they're like, okay, Carolina, you're going to go. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld just show up. Okay. You know what? You're going to go on after him. <laughs> oh. uh, and, I, and I remember being like, great. That's great. Cool. I'm just, I'm getting ready to. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Following Seinfeld, great. He did great. <laughs> <laughs> However, a show occurred not five days after the Johnny Winter gig that was much more receptive to the Ramon style. The weekend of July 16th, 1975, was the date of the CBGB Festival of Top 40 Unrecorded New York Bands. It's a bit of a mouthful. And most consider this weekend to be the official start of the American punk scene. Yeah, you're right. CBGB's became the place to watch like the best rock bands uh, since then. Like the shows were always packed afterwards. Yeah, because Rolling Stone did a big article on the show and like three quarters of the article was about the Ramones. Yes, because there were so many people, Talking Heads, Blondie, Tough Darts, The Fast, Television, The Heartbreakers. I mean, it was just a massive, like what, three-day festival? It was amazing. Yeah. Now, while not all the bands that made up this early scene, you know, we, we they're not all particularly impressive when <laughs> revisited now. Like, like Tough Darts are, are pretty cool, you know, and Fast has one good song. But, you know, you, you kind of see, like, okay, like, I can kind of see why these bands didn't, like, make it to the level of the Talking Heads or Blondie or Patti Smith or the Ramones. But there are still some absolute gems to be found in this early scene particularly in the works of the Lou Reed-esque Mink DeVille. Hey, Mr. Jim, I can see the shape you're in. Finger on your eyebrow, left hand on your hip thinking that you're such a lady killer think you're so slick well all right back to uh, 2016 <laughs> because I'm not that old guys I'm not that old 
2016, when we first started dating, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I don't know. If, you, if you're having a, a hard time, have four drinks and listen to Spanish Stroll. Yeah. And just dance around your room. Yeah. it's. I mean, it really, like, that's just, that song never fails to put me in a good mood. Well, or if you're going for a walk. Yeah. Put it on. Oh, it's perfect for a walk. It really is. However... That's not to say that there weren't any New York bands that definitely fall in the punk category that weren't already signed in 1975. Because the festival of top 40 unsigned New York bands at CBGB, like, that suggests that there weren't any signed bands in New York <laughs> in 1975. But a full year before the first Ramones album, a band called The Dictators had already released their debut. The Dictators Go Girl Crazy! <laughs> Ironic. Yes. It's meant to be a joke. I mean, it's almost like as if MC5 had almost like a really talented joke band. <laughs> That's the dictators, just like personal in the pizzas is to the remotes. <laughs> yeah, the dictator's very funny. Like the yes. if you if you get a hold of a, a copy of uh the out al- like the actual album uh Dictators Go Girl Crazy, like the it's full of great jokes. Like they're all very Juvenile. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're funny guys. I mean, they formed in 1972. Uh, They're also from New York. They played fast, aggressive, and their songs are just so catchy. And by 1974, they were actually playing regularly at Coventry, Mm -hmm. where which is when Sniper was playing, when Joey Ramone's band was playing. So they knew each other, of Of, course. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah, all these fucking guys knew each other. And of course, you know, uh, handsome Dick Manitoba from. Uh, the Dictators eventually opened, you know, what was our favorite bar in Manhattan, yeah. Manitoba's. Where we, you actually had a conversation with him. I did. <laughs> a drunken one. He gave me his number. I, for some reason, I don't know why, we were very, very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gave, yeah, I, we, we could talk. We could talk about stuff. Yeah. I think I mentioned something about like, yeah, we could do a podcast or something. I don't know. But I don't know. Manitoba's is closed, so I don't think Handsome Dick is doing much. So I could probably call him. Nah. (laughs) He's busy. (laughs) Now, the dictators were important, not for how they influenced the Ramones. When we talk about like this story right here, they weren't important for how they influenced the Ramones, but more for who they influenced in the ancillary world cropping up around these early punk bands. Legs McNeil and John Holstrom said that the Dictator's first album resonated so hard with their style that they started the famous punk magazine mostly so they'd have an excuse to hang out with the Dictators. 
They said they they also wanted to drink for free at shows. <laughs> get girls. Yeah, press. That's how you do it. Yeah. So it was like between three guys. It was like John, the cartoon illustrator, Legs, the writer, and resident punk, mm-hmm. of course. And along, they also brought their friend along, uh, Jed Dunn, who was like the business guy. I'm going to handle all the business stuff. <laughs> they were all kids. Yes, they were coming down. <laughs> they were teenagers coming down from Connecticut to New York City to start this rock and roll magazine with a sense of humor. That was it. It was not just a music magazine, but more of like a lifestyle magazine. Like, you know, it's all about drinking beer, getting laid, eating cheeseburgers, B-movies, comics, you know, weird shit, and rock bands. Of of course. We'll we'll mention them too. (laughs) And they decided to call it punk uh, when John suggested Teenage News as the title, which is horrible. (laughs) Which is why Legs was like, let's just call it punk. Yeah, just punk magazine. And as soon as they started, like they literally like just just got there. They decided to uh, hit up CBGB's because it was like, all right, what's step one? Well, we should go to a club. Okay. And when they got there, they actually saw Lou Reed just sitting at the bar drinking. John was like a big fan and like played his records for Legs. Legs had no idea, but <laughs> except except that what Legs recognized him from the album cover. Yeah. So he was just like, "Oh, hey, there's your friend. <laughs> oh, look, that guy, that guy you talk about. Yeah, go interview him. I think he's famous." <laughs> I, I mean, that's the thing is that they also like they had a pretty cool marketing campaign before they even rela- released the first issue. That's why a lot of people kind of put the name punk rock together with this. Scene is because these two dudes like covered the Lower East Side in posters that just said punk is coming. That's all it said. <laughs> <laughs> Not in that way. Like it's it, it, punk is on its way. Like, <laughs> How did it, you know that? That I was because I know your giggles. <laughs> <laughs> But it, that's but it was very foreboding. Like it was like, what the fuck is punk? Like what is this? Like what's going on? And so when they showed up, yeah, like they had their first interview with Lou Reed, and they just fucking asked him about what kind of hamburger he liked. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were like eighteen. They're like, you know, so uh, you know, uh, what do you like on the hamburger? <laughs> Lou Reed's like a serious artist. I know. He's like, are you taking my order? I, I mean, this is 1975. Like, this is, I think Transformer had already come out at this point. Like, he'd been working with all sorts of, like, very famous musicians, and he's got to deal with these two fucking teenagers. Yeah, but he was so rude to them. I mean, they were fans. I mean, at least well, John was a fan. I mean, Lou Reed was rude to everyone. Yeah, that's yeah. true. No one is special. <laughs> Now, while McNeil and Holstrom were annoying Lou Reed with fucking hamburger questions, <laughs> the Ramones were recording a series of demos in an attempt to get a record deal, some of which were recorded by Marty Thau, the same dude who produced Suicide's debut. Now, the amazing thing about these recordings is that unlike a lot of the demos made by punk bands around this time period, the demos not only survived, but they sound fucking great. Like, check out this early recording of uh, Chainsaw.
love their songwriting they're like i don't know what do we like oh I, this movie we just saw <laughs> yeah yeah we're gonna do that or like later pet cemetery it's yeah. it's like uh i don't know what should we write about pet cemetery i don't want to go there <laughs> yeah yeah that's good that's a good idea actually that's good yeah i mean texas chainsaw Mass- that actually that was that came from johnny uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was uh, was his favorite movie. Yeah. Oh, he loved horror films. He wanted to be a director. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, a fucking director, a, a horror movie directed by Johnny Ramone. I could only imagine. Mm. Not good. Really? I I was gonna think like brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and once the demos were done, Danny Field started shopping the tapes around to record companies. Although there was at first. No positive feedback whatsoever. No, I mean, they sent, like, their demos, and all the tapes were quickly sent back with a hard pass. <laughs> and they could actually see from the tape the, the, where the record companies stopped listening, yeah. which is, like, 10 seconds of yeah. a song. Ugh. Because they wouldn't rewind it. <laughs> and all the Ramones could think of was, what's wrong with them? Yeah. I don't understand. But, I mean, because they thought they had something great, and then everyone else was just kind of like, this is not good. Yeah. This is not for us. Uh, even Warner Brothers said they sounded like bad Led Zeppelin. Ugh. I know. I mean, that's a, the Ramones were right. Like, they just needed to find the people who would take the chance. They needed to find like, the forward-thinking uh, record company. And finally, the cassette made its way to an A&R guy at Sire Records named Craig Leon. Now, Craig already had a certain amount of respectability when it came to the New York scene, because earlier that year, he'd already discovered another CBGB mainstay, the Talking Heads. I see the clouds that move across the sky I see the wind that moves the clouds away It moves the clouds over by the building I pick the building that I want to live in I smell the pine trees and the pictures in the woods I see the pine cones that fall by the highway That's the highway that goes to the building I pick the Have you ever seen uh, 
the early Talking Heads performances at CB's, like some of their first shows. No, I gotta. They're out there. They're so good. David Byrne is so shy. Oh. Like, is it when he's singing Psycho Killer? It's like Psycho Killer. Like he doesn't have he doesn't have the confidence yet, you know, because that his singing in that first record is so fucking confident. It's so fantastic. Fantastic, And that's the funny thing. Like what we sort of uh, talked about earlier, like, you know, you do think of that early, like when they talk about like the beginnings of punk, like it was a lot of bands like Talking Heads and television, you know, that were not what you would not in any way describe as punk. I mean, it's early alternative. Yeah, it's like the same scene. Yeah, it's a, but it's it's all the same scene and they're all there at the same time, you know, and imagine like David Byrne now is such a mainstay of intellectualism. Like he's like he is the I mean, he writes theory books about music now, uh, but back then he was just the quiet art nerd trying to avoid Johnny Ramone. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Now, Craig Leon had enough sense to recognize that there was something special in the demos that the Ramones had recorded. So he passed the tape along, and it eventually landed in the lap of the head of Sire Records. Seymour Stein. Oh yes, suddenly Seymour <laughs> was intrigued. <laughs> See what I? I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he was intrigued because his wife Linda went to go see them and loved them. So Linda and Danny, who were uh, BFFs, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, they actually set up an audition for the Ramones at Performance Studios, and they passed. The Ramones passed. They finally made it. (laughs) And Seymour offered them a record deal, which they signed at Arturo's Loft, January 1976. Yeah. I I mean, there was a a long road to that. Like, I mean, there was a lot of back and forth. You know, there was a lot of like, at first, like the signs was like, well, all right, we love you. We'll give you a singles deal. And Johnny was like, nah. No. <laughs> now we're going to hold that for a whole album. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because our songs are like a minute. <laughs> now, when it came to the Ramones' self-titled debut, the entire thing was recorded in just three days. This was fantastically fast for a band, especially at that time. You know, at that time, you'd have it like Pink Floyd taking a year to record an album. But the Ramones wanted it done even faster. When Seymour Stein dropped by the studio to ask how things were going after the Ramones had been in the studio just three hours, Johnny said, things are going so great, we only got seven tracks down. Oh, <laughs> Seven tracks in three hours. Jeez. And they thought that was slow. <laughs> Johnny thought that was very slow. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why we had to waste time. <laughs> and after every take, Johnny would ask how it sounded. The engineers would give it like a thumbs up. And then Johnny would go, all right, let's move on to the next thing. He didn't even need to hear it back. <laughs> He's like, if you guys think it sounds good, we're done. Yeah. Move on to the next thing. Man, it's only 930. <laughs> <sighs> 
So they recorded at Plaza Sound, which was above uh, Radio City Music Hall. Uh, that was starting on February 2nd, 1976. And Craig Leon became the house producer at Sire, so he got to co-produce the album with Tommy. So we remember Craig Leon, A&R guy, but also worked in producing, uh, worked with Suicide. Yeah. As we said before in our Suicide series. And Craig said the, se- the first album sounded very much influenced by Hawkwind's Silver Machine. Really? Yeah. Lemmy's first band. Yeah. And, and Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. So he's like, this is like, because for Craig, like he was just like, this is amazing. This is insane. And then he started to think about it more and more. And he's like, oh, it's very Beatles, very Hawkwind. Like he got it, which really was helpful. To have a producer who got it. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, because Tommy was, you know, remember, like, Tommy was, had been in music production for years at that point. So, like, Tommy was absolutely, like, instrumental to the sound of that album. And, like, and how fucking, it sounds both raw and professional at the same time. It doesn't sound like a demo. It's still, but he ca- they captured the rawness of the band uh, in such a fantastic way. It's perfectly done. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, while they were recording uh, Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World. Remember that song that we talked about? about yeah. You know, I'm a uh, Nazi Shotzi. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the time when Seymour comes in and he's like, hey, how's everything going? Let, let me hear something. And and then he hears Joey singing, I'm a Nazi, baby. <laughs> I'm a Nazi, yes, I am. Ah, and Seymour's like... <laughs> You can't sing that. I'm Jewish. You're Jewish. Most of us are Jewish. That's it's just not right. So they got in an argument over the lyrics. So uh, in the Ramones, like I I guess they like kind of try to compromise a little bit. They weren't going to back down completely. They compromised a little bit. They're like, okay, what about this, Seymour? How about I'm a shock trooper in a stupor? Yes, I am. And Seymour goes, you think that's better? (laughs) But he gave in to the compromise because you know, I mean. Not any, not everybody thought it was a great idea to be singing about being a Nazi and everything. But no one's going to censor Didi, who wrote the lyrics to the song. They're like, no, that's your art. You're 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 making kind of like a stance, like a joke in a way. It's it's ironic. We get it. And yeah. your fascination with Nazis. Well, of course, because remember, like Didi grew up in post World War II Germany. You know, like he lived all that shit. He used to make money rooting through abandoned buildings to find old Nazi paraphernalia and you go and sell it to people. Yeah. (laughs) Collectors. It was with this album that the Ramones, even if they never would have released anything else ever again, secured their place in rock and roll history, not least by recording possibly the most popular and recognizable punk song of all time. It's never going to be topped. Of course, that song is Blitzkrieg Bop. Let's go. 
song's so good it's still good yeah it's still good i mean if, if you take all the car commercials out of your head yeah then- <laughs> the gopro commercial comes to, yeah. comes to mind yeah uh tommy wrote that originally uh and called it animal hop because it was about kids going to a show and it would be really fun and indeed he's like let me take that <laughs> and he's like no we're gonna call it Blitzkrieg pop. Yeah. It, and I don't, you know, Tommy kind of let him because Dee Dee's like the very creative type, of course. And I, like they, you know, he changed all, a lot of the lines. Like, you know, instead of, instead of they're shouting in the back now, how about, let me write this down. Shoot them in the back now. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense, but it sounds better. Yes. It just sounds cool. Well, I mean, they needed a, like a, a railing song, you know, like a, it, Johnny called it their Saturday night, you know, like basic city rollers type, like, yeah. like something to keep the, the crowd stirring because as we say before as we said before they're very much a live band yeah i mean i i couldn't imagine what it was like to be at a show and you know any ramon show like any going to see them at any time and be able to go to see the ramones and being able to scream hey ho let's go yeah like, <laughs> like how much fun that would have been and they kept that forever you know and that song will forever be uh, one of the best rock and roll songs ever fucking written But the songs themselves were only three quarters of the equation when it came to the impact of the album. Even though the music spoke for itself, it was paired with an album cover that perfectly captured the street tough image of the Ramones. Oh, yeah, they did that uh, photo shoot. I think they, it was originally for Punk Magazine. It was. And Roberta Bailey, she was she just started like taking photos because she was working for Punk. And so she, you know, she took photos for them. She did like a photo shoot with them. Uh, John and Legs were there to help with the shoot. And they said the guys, all they did was complain <laughs> about everything. They were big complainers. Yeah, they were like, how long is this going to take? Jeez. <laughs> like, Johnny, it's been... 20 minutes. <laughs> We're done. It, it was just a lot of that. And, and then also the hardest part was trying to get them in a symmetrical line. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> just just stay there. It's like getting puppies into a, like, a barrel. I don't know <laughs> if that makes sense. It's like it's, someone's moving out. The other person's like smoking a cigarette. They're like, ah, this is not going to work. Uh, one funny thing, Johnny said that he had his... Uh, middle finger extended mm-hmm. on, and it's on the cover he was disappointed that no one caught up on that oh that no one got mad they just said no <laughs> one just like brought it up to him he's like man i thought it was cool it's a really cool cover well, predictably the album didn't sell well I mean, that's the, the, I'll go ahead and give you a fucking spoiler spoiler alert for the entire punk series none of these albums sold well no no <laughs> Out of the original run, only 7,000 people bought the Ramones' self-titled debut, which makes it all the more amazing that you were able to find a first pressing at a fucking church yard sale in L.A. a few years ago. It was amazing. <laughs> I got I got a bunch. I got Sweet for $1. I think I got that Ramones' debut album for like a maybe $2. It was $2 because the price tag is still on. The, they put the price tag on the fucking label, which is like, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but yeah, you got, it's a first pressing. It's in pretty good shape. Uh, probably like BG to VG plus uh, for $2. <laughs> it's, you've lived the record collector's dream. It's what I've been dreaming of for years. And I've never found that one sweet moment. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice. <laughs> 
I was just walking by and it was like, you know, some sort of sale at a church. I was l- just walking by. Yeah. And it, I just went in and peeked in my head. I was like, oh, look, they have so many cool records. Man, these are so cheap. I don't get it. Yeah. It wasn't until we started dating and I was going through your records and said, what's this? And looked it up and like, nope, that's a fucking first pressing. Fantastic. And yeah. now it's a part of our record collection. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's cool. It plays well. <laughs> but even though the album didn't sell that many copies, this album served as the beginning of something brand new in American music, and both the fans and certain people in the industry took the cue. In Los Angeles, Rodney Bingenheimer, formerly of Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco, remember we talked about in, I think, part four, Four of the Stooges series. That's right. If you have a long, impossible name, you should name your club that. (laughs) Well, Bingenheimer launched a 40-year radio career on Los Angeles' K-Rock FM with the Ramones as his first guest. Rodney Bingenheimer's uh, L.A. show, like his K-Rock show was fucking great. I got to hear it a couple of times when I went out and visited my aunt in L.A. many years ago. And it was still fucking good in the 90s. Cool. And wherever the Ramones played... 73 shows in 1976 alone, scenes across America were created in their wake, even if some of those scenes weren't strictly punk. And some of those scenes were very short-lived, but the Ramones were spreading the word that anyone could be in a band and play music if they wanted it bad enough. Now, while that message would take about 15 years to truly reach the masses in the early 90s, the Ramones were still straight up inspiring to all the right people, especially when those future musicians and artists saw them live. But the Ramones were also taking inspiration as they traveled. After one show in Cleveland in mid-1976, the Ramones happened upon a midnight showing of the Todd Browning classic Freaks, and the band took to the film immediately. Yeah, that's such a good movie. It's a great movie. We we like I've loved that movie for years, but yeah, I showed it to you for the first time a couple of nights ago. I didn't realize how good it was. It's so fucking good because it's Todd Browning. It's the same guy that did Dracula. That that I watch a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, that gets shown here in the household quite often. It's a once a year thing. But Freaks is a it's a about it's about an hour long. It's about a uh, kind of a Tom Thumb type character, a very short man, uh, and he's in the circus. And there's these freaks that have this community going in this traveling circus. And of course, uh, Tom Thumb, the Tom Thumb character, falls in love with an acrobat, a German acrobat. She's evil. She only wants his money. And, of course, things get worse from there. Yes. So eventually they get married. It's about like three quarters of the way through the movie. And there is a wedding feast. And at that wedding feast, the freaks start a chant.
of course, that became one of uh, the Ramones' most famous songs. You know, yeah. that ended every fucking concert with Pinhead. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would have a Pinhead, like a guy in a mask and everything going around. And then they would also ha- hand over like the, the big sign that says Gaba 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 Hey. Yeah. Uh, for, for Joey to show around. I mean, it's, it's all part of the fun live experience. It's all fun. Yeah. I mean, because the, the Ramones, like there's a ton of concert videos. There's a, a ton of concert footage out there. A lot of live albums. Uh, but yeah, Pinhead uh, is uh, written. It was written by Dee Dee. Uh, and it's it's. It's kind of a sad song, uh, like somewhat, because it's got, of course, I think it's the second verse is D-U-M-B, everyone's accusing me. Because, you know, everyone kept calling D.D. dumb because D.D. was not the most, I guess, I don't know, not the most articulate of people, but D.D. was very smart in certain ways. He was just, he's like like certain musicians where it's like, you are a genius when it comes to music, when it comes to everything else. You're fucking hopeless. <laughs> but but maybe that was what the song was really about, is being like, hey, freaks, we're freaks, you're freaks. Let's just, like, sing a song about it. Yeah. L- let's just rally around with it, you know? And, and that was the whole point of the movie, of course, and, yeah. and the whole point of this song. Yeah, it really was. Like, it was for years after, like, it's always been, like, a rallying cry for weirdos. Like, yeah, we're all weird. One of us. One of <laughs> us. Come on. Google, gobble, go. <laughs> <laughs> So the night after they saw Freaks, the Ramones played Youngstown, Ohio, and encountered a Cleveland band just about to move to New York City called The Dead Boys. Uh, the old punk standby of I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dead Boys, they moved to New York from Cleveland because Joey encouraged them. He even set them up with CBGBs. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he was very instrumental to their career, of course. Of course, yeah. And when they met the Dead Boys, who were, of course, big fans of the Ramones, the show was two-thirds empty. Yeah. You know, like, I mean... It I mean, re- Youngstown, Ohio, we've been to Youngstown. Like, we drove through there on one of our road trips, and uh, I would not imagine the Ramones doing great there. Unfortunately. <laughs> I bet Johnny had a great time with the fucking Baseball Hall of Fame, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. But, yeah, so at the show, after the show, the, the promoters were just so pissed off. They're like, we didn't make any money. We didn't make any They're, like, foot stomping. They're really pissed <laughs> off. They're giving everyone a lot of shit. And what's worse is that Danny had to collect the money at the end of the show, you know, and this was a very disappointing show. Yeah, so, and, and Danny's not the most assertive person. No. No, no, he's like a really nice guy. A very, very nice guy, yeah. So Danny turns to Monty and he says, if you go collect the money from those guys, I will make you road manager like today. (laughs) Monty Melnick, of course. They used to run performance studios. Exactly. So Monty's like, all right. He got the money and he became the road manager for the next 25 years. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a big night. <laughs> and one of the fun things that the dead boys did as they were pulling into the highway with the dead boys, the dead boys were in a car ahead of them, kind of like showing, like, we'll show you out in front, you know, out how to get out of here. Uh, stiff baiters climbed on the roof of the car and pulled down his pants and mooned him. All the way, all, all the way to Tofu. <laughs> and the Ramones are like, they're like, ah, they, these guys are good guys. And they just, they, they became friends from then on. Of course. Oh. Now, while the Ramones' influence on America would take years, if not decades, to bear fruit, their impact on the scene in the UK was felt almost immediately. Because the UK, as we know from our Damned series, was primed and ready for the Ramones in 1976. Oh yeah, when oh when the Ramones finally went there, they went they're like we're going to Europe. We're going on tour. Yeah, well, they did two shows. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weekend, but it was still like a big weekend for punk music and the whole punk scene. So when the Ramones got there, they noticed like these British punks looked like really different from them. Yeah. They're like these these guys have like black makeup, safety pins, like S&M type bondage pants like colored spiky hair and chains everywhere they're like holy crap (laughs) (laughs) and and also these guys like these british punks they would act tough talk tough like talk like tough guy talk and the funny thing is the ramones like couldn't understand what they're saying because of their heavy accents (laughs) so they just kind of like just kind of like nodded yeah pretended not to notice (laughs) and even tommy was like kind of afraid of them he grabbed these uh the spurs from his drums like these big metal things he put them in his pocket he's like in case i need to use this (laughs) (laughs) and so the ramones learned to pretend to not be intimidated yeah (laughs) but it turns out the british punks thought the ramones were a gang there's a full-on highly violent street gang from new york city the scariest place in the world right (laughs) so the british punks pretended to be tough while the ramones were pretending it to be tough too (laughs) they were both getting tough on each other of course so the shows that they did was uh they did the roundhouse of course it was just like a this big long place on uh july 4th by the way Mm, yeah 1976 uh good old independence day the bicentennial the 200th anniversary of america it was like the biggest day it was for america (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we went over to the uk and we showed them out (laughs) (laughs) and then the next day they did dingwalls uh Uh, on july 5th of course and like the cool thing about it is that like you know a lot of the bands that we've talked about did come to the shows like the damned came to the roundhouse show and they even got to know them a little bit like they chatted with them they're like oh you should come see our show we're gonna why don't you come and joey's like "Uh, we got another show tomorrow (laughs) and the clash and the sex pistols came to the dingwall show yeah, I, I mean, and that's the thing is that the, the Clash and the Sex Pistols, and especially the Clash, were terrified of the Ramones. Like, going into it, they really did think, like, are they going to beat us up? <laughs> like, are they like are they going to be cool? Are they going to beat us up? And they, like, the Clash was outside, like, throwing rocks at the window of the Ramones' dressing room. And then, like, the Ramones open it up, and they're like, we're the Clash! We're a band! <laughs> <laughs> The Ramones like like did a, a something like a the equivalent of a bed sheet, you know, tied in you know knots to pull the Clash into their fucking dressing room. That's to, like, amazing. <laughs> to, like meet up with them and, and talk with them, and then of course there's uh there's the story that they pissed in a beer and handed it to Johnny Rotten. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Tommy the said it wasn't true. Because well, the Ramones were. Famous for pissing in beers and giving it to people. Yeah. That was like their thing that they did. Didn't Iggy Pop do that once? Yeah, he did that once. He did that once. But the Ramones did it for like 20 years. 
<laughs> I think they stopped eventually. <laughs> well, they did it every once in a while for old times' sake. The Ramones stopped eventually. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but the fun thing is, like, Tommy said that some guy at the Roundhouse show yelled, Don't play music! <laughs> and he's like, I, I can't tell if they're for us or against us. <laughs> and also because we're getting spit on. Yes. What but- is this, all this spit? Why is everyone spitting on us? <laughs> Gobbing. Yeah. <laughs> So just like the Sex Pistols, the Ramones garnered their fair share of bad press in the UK because nothing in 1976 sold newspapers like punk. In 1976, there was a rash of glue-sniffing-related deaths in Scotland, and naturally, the muckety-mucks tried placing the blame on Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue. Imagine a fucking stuffy councilman being forced to listen to Now I Want to Snip Some Glue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to all this shit, like, like Dee Dee was actually quoted, he said, like, shit, it's a good thing we split from those assholes 200 years ago. I hope they don't think we really sniff glue. I quit when I was eight. Oh, okay, that's very <laughs> responsible of you, Dee Dee. <laughs> hmm. The point was the Ramones, they weren't looking to cause trouble like the Sex Pistols were. Like, they weren't courting controversy. They weren't trying to piss people off or make people sniff glue by writing, Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue. They wrote, Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue because they sniffed glue. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) All the Ramones wanted to do was make music and make a living playing it. They were working artists in the truest sense, making art not because it was a desire, but because it was the only thing they knew how to do to feed themselves. And since the album wasn't selling as well as they'd hoped in America, the Ramones had no choice but to constantly tour, which would be a hallmark of the Ramones for years to come, with varying degrees of success. But it wasn't just stick to that kept the Ramones in business all those years. The main reason was that from the time the Ramones started touring, they were a fantastic live band. song <laughs> yeah just thinking about cia conspiracies in 1976 it's fucking perfect i just keep hearing banana <laughs> i love it 
And that's where we'll end part two of the Ramones. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, this is, this is, you know, part one is, you know, the mess of bringing it all together. Part two is, uh, you know, of course, the New York scene coming together, their influence on the UK. And part three, that's Leave Home, Rocket to Russia, Rock and Roll High School. And Phil the, Spector. The unmitigated disaster that <laughs> was working with Phil Spector uh, that also produced um, our favorite Ramones album, End of the Century. Yeah. It really is. I know that for some diehard Ramones fans, that that is a very unpopular opinion. Yes, but I'm sorry, it's really good. I'm sorry, it's the one. It's I just like the songs. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's I fucking first heard it uh, in college and just fuck it, I fell in love with it. And I know, yeah, there are certain Ramones fans out there, and even certain members of the Ramones who are like, that was our worst album. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> About most of them. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and there are Ramones fans out there that say like, yeah, that end of the century is uh, fucking terrible. But hey, man, maybe we're just huge Phil Spector fans. And you maybe. put those two things together, and man, just the songs are just so fucking good. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to all that in uh, in part three, and then you know, part four is uh, the rest of it because <laughs> they had a long career, but it's a fascinating career. I mean, that's the thing about the Ramones is that you know it's. It is one hell of a fucking story. It's one yeah. of the best stories in rock and roll. Yeah, this is it's a long ride to get from Forest Hills, Queens, all the way around the world, pretty much, which we're, we're going to talk about, especially with my Hispanic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, the big fan base that they got there. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. So, we're going to end this uh, episode as we do uh, every single week with uh, a band that uh, listens to the show, a band that, you know, sent in. They do? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank yeah. you. Every week, yes. You know, like thank you guys so much for your submissions. They're still coming in. Yeah, yeah. We're we're still checking them out. Actually, we're still listening every single week. Uh, but this week, we're going to be choosing King Black Acid off of their album "Loves a Long Song." Uh, King Black Acid loves a long song. I and like that. That's such a username. <laughs> I like it though. I think it's cool. Yeah, and. Uh, they're very correct. These songs are very long, but they're fucking great. Yeah. Uh, it's got a, it's the first band that we're playing that, you know, doesn't really have like a punk edge to it. Uh, these guys are, uh, they've got a lot of great like 90s influences. Um, I fucking love it. Let's play the lead track off of King Black Acid Loves a Long Song. It's called Butterfly Bomber. So uh, we'll talk to y'all next week. Keep sending those in. No dogs in space at gmail.com. We appreciate each and every one of you. Stay safe. Uh, and uh, we'll keep putting out content as long as y'all keep coming back. Yeah, I mean, we're at home right now. <laughs> this will never end. Never. Thank you. Thank you.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.